all and welcome to the first episode of the Jammy Podcast. My name is Jammy and I will be hosting these episodes. Every episode I'll be interviewing celebrities about their lives, past, present and future. I'm particularly interested in what inspired them to the career they are in now. For the first episode I'll be interviewing cosmochemist Dr Tim Gregory, finalist of the BBC2 programme Astronauts Do You Have What It Takes. Right, let's go right into it. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Dr. Tim Gregory. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) When I saw the BBC Two Astronauts programme recently during lockdown, not only did I love the series, I also thought how passionate and friendly Dr. Tim was. A great first guest to my podcast. So if it's okay with you, Dr. Tim, I'm just going to ask you some questions about the Astronauts programme, your job, as well as your upcoming plans. That's, that sounds wonderful. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you. So, first of all, you must get asked this all the time, but what is cosmochemistry? Right, that's a really good question. So, cosmochemistry is the chemical study of materials from outer space. And there are a few different types of cosmochemistry you can do. For example, the people who study the, the rocks that the Apollo astronauts brought back are cosmochemists. You know, they take these rocks into the laboratory, tease them apart and figure out the information that's within them. There are cosmochemists who study samples brought back from the tails of comets, for example. These little tiny dust grains that were collected from the tail of a comet. Um, Take them into the lab and tease them apart. But most cosmochemists, like myself, they study meteorites. And meteorites are rocks that fall from the skies and land on the surface of the Earth. And it turns out that most meteorites come from asteroids. And so by studying the meteorites, we learn more about the asteroids and the formation of the solar system four and a half billion years ago. So I always like to think of cosmochemistry as space science plus geology equals cosmochemistry. So (laughs) you're studying about meteorites sounds fascinating, but can you tell us, will we be hit by a meteorite anytime soon? That's a really, really good question. And there are, there are people actively researching that all the time. So there are millions and millions of asteroids and occasionally one does happen upon the Earth. Now, thankfully, most of them are not big enough to cause any huge damage, although sometimes they do on a regional level. And a really great example of one that did cause a lot of damage was the one that wiped out the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. And so far as we know, there isn't going to be a big asteroid hitting the Earth anytime soon but there is a small chance that one might hit the earth in the second half of next century so that's something in the year 2170 something like that and this asteroid is called Bennu and it's currently being explored by NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission Um, it's currently actually in orbit around the asteroid Bennu and it's, it's figuring out what it's made of how strong it is and thinking of potential ways that we could deflect it should asteroid Bennu happen to you know, come upon the Earth. And so thankfully the answer for now is no, we're safe for now. But it is something that scientists are thinking about, which is always good, right? And how can it be predicted that this meteorite or any meteorite is going to hit if it does? Right, that's a really good question. So 
asteroids like Bennu, they're, they're tracked across the sky by scientists using telescopes and radar and things like that. And as they move across the sky, almost in the same way that you could look at a car and you could predict where it might be in 30 seconds based on where it is now and how fast it's going. It's kind of similar to that, right? So we know where the asteroids are. We know how fast they're going and in what direction. And so then it's simply, I say simply, it's these very clever people who do this. I don't do this. Very clever people. They, they put those numbers into, into equations and computer models and, and using the power of science and the predictive power of science, they wind the clock forward to see where these asteroids are going to be in 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years. And of course, the, the uncertainty gets bigger the further you go forward in time. Going back to the car, if you see a car going down the street, it's very easy to imagine where the car would be in five, five seconds. But thinking where it might be in five minutes is much more difficult because there are a lot more possibilities. And so as we go forward into the future, things become more uncertain. But, but for now, we are safe, thank goodness. That's good. <laughs> and how did you end up having an interest in such a field? Right, that, that's another great question because cosmochemistry isn't a subject that you study at school normally. No. And, and so ever since I was a really, really young lad, I, even before I was your age, I, I had a, a rock collection. And I've always loved rocks. I, I've had little little books with like rocks and minerals and going out to the beach and finding as many as I could and I love fossils and things like that so I was really interested in geology for a long long time and I think lots of people are interested in geology when they're young you know have you, have you, do you have a rock collection by any chance or anything or, yeah. yeah right okay so I'm speaking to someone who gets it so lots and lots of people have rock collections and I always think that the people who, who never grow out of that go on to become geologists or something like that. And alongside this interest in, in geology, I've always been really interested in space as well. I guess you're interested in space too, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. So you'll understand again where I'm coming from. So this, this interest in geology and space, it, it perfectly overlaps in the middle to become cosmochemistry because I'm studying space using rocks. And there's no one who knows a rock better than a geologist. Wow, so both your passions sort of came together. Yeah, it's, it's almost the perfect subject, you know? Yeah. It's, like, it's almost like, I don't know, I can imagine if you were really interested in animals and the ocean, marine biology would be a perfect subject or something like that. And, and so is the case with cosmochemistry, I guess. Yeah, so um, in 2014 you did an internship at NASA. This sounds amazing. Tell oh, us about God. your experience taking part in that. That was, like you said, that was in 2014. I was, I was an undergraduate student. So I was just, I'd done three years of my degree and I had the final year to go. And in the summer between those two years, so in the summer holidays, I, I went off to Houston, Texas and was fortunate enough to do an internship at NASA Johnson Space Center studying meteorites. And I still can't believe it happened, honestly. It was six years ago and I, I, still, I still can't quite believe that it happened. Um, I remember at the time, it was one of those moments where you have to read the email 15 times and then send it to you, send it to your mum to read as well, just to check if you're actually reading this right. And um, it was honestly, it was one of the best summers of my whole life. It's, it's really where I discovered meteorites as well. Before then, I hadn't really studied them in any huge depth. And my summer project was, was unpicking the history of a particular meteorite that was found in Antarctica in 1994. And, and I spent the summer studying it. Um, and that, that got me hooked. So it just sort of confirmed that this is what you wanted to do? 
Yes, absolutely. So I guess towards the end of my undergraduate degree, everyone at that sort of stage of their undergraduate degree sort of starts asking themselves the question, what next? You know, I've, I've yes. spent so long working hard at school and then getting my A-levels and getting to university and working hard. And what am I going to do with this now? And it's, it's a really difficult question to answer, actually. That, um, But one of the ways that you can answer the question of what you want to do when you're older is, is go and do some work experience somewhere. And, and if you like it, then that's great. You can learn some things and think, right, I might want to do something like this. And if you don't like it, that's also useful as well, because it's like, okay, we can forget about those. And as it happened, I really enjoyed the internship. I mean, it's not surprising. It was, it was unbelievable. And um, that, that really cemented my, my idea that I wanted to do a PhD. Where a PhD, I didn't really understand what a PhD was at the time. But I knew that one of the, really the only ways that I could have carried on studying meteorites was to do a PhD. And so I spoke to some of the PhD students in my department at the University of Manchester and said, what, what, what is a PhD? Now, what do you do? What do you do at nine o'clock on a Tuesday morning or three o'clock on a Thursday afternoon? And after chatting to those people and, and, and doing this internship and getting some first hand as a researcher, I knew that it was for me doing a PhD. So you did finish your PhD in isotope cosmochemistry and geology in May last year and now you're a full-time research scientist at the British Geological Survey. That sounds like an amazing job but in normal circumstances what do you do every day and, partic and particularly how does that relate to space? Right so I will answer that question pre-lockdown because the last yeah. couple of months have not been the usual for, yeah. for an isotope cosmochemist. And so a usual day in the lab, I, I cycle to work, which is kind of nice. And, and I, I, I get changed and then I go to my office and, and I, you know, I plug my laptop in. I've got a desk, just like, just like most people do at work. And then usually I go down to the lab. And the lab is, it's, I think it's my favourite place to be, actually. I, I prefer being in the lab than the office. And, but before I go in the lab, I have to gown up because it's a clean lab. And a clean lab is a dust-free environment. So I'm not just allowed to walk in in my, in my normal clothes. I have to put a special lab coat on. You have to wear a hat, these special sleeves, these special boots, um, special gloves, and of course, goggles as well. And for some things, we have to wear a face mask already as well. So we're kind of used to that with the lockdown going on. Yes. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll do some, you know, usually I've got a couple of samples in, in the pipeline. And it, usually, it takes a good, couple of weeks to get a sample from a meteorite that you're holding to something that you can measure on an instrument and it's usually a, a series of quite complicated chemical procedures and that's one of the reasons I like it it's because it's very, it's very detailed very orderly it's very precise it, it, it's almost like cooking right no it's more like baking because in cooking you can afford to add a dash of salt if you fancy it yeah osmochemistry you have to follow the instructions exact and so I, I spend a, a lot of time in the laboratory and work with some really wonderful people there as well, which is great. We keep each other company in the lab. And I do also spend a lot of time at my desk, mainly writing, actually. It's not something that I realized at, at the start of my sort of scientific journey, that scientists spend an awful lot of time writing. And, and, I, and that, that came as a bit of a surprise to me. I thought, you know, I don't scientists just spend all day in the lab, but Looking back, it kind of makes sense because when you do the science, you have to tell people about it. You have to share your results and your methods and your findings with, with other scientists around the world. And we do this by writing papers and reports and, and short abstracts. And, I, and 
writing takes a long, long, long time. Um, it's something that I certainly have to put a lot of time into to get right. I'm not naturally a good writer, but um, I do spend a lot of time writing at my desk. And of course, number crunching as well. I spend a lot of time in Microsoft Excel. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I can imagine. I've learned to love it though. I've, I've learned to love Microsoft Excel, I admit. So this must just be amazing when you are holding a meteorite, knowing that that came from... Um, it never... It never to amaze me. <laughs> um, so apart from study space and rocks, do you have any hobbies? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is playing guitar. I've, I've played guitar since I was 12. So I guess I get, that's 15 years now I've been playing guitar. That, that's more than half my life. Gosh, yeah, wow. I've just realised that's more than <laughs> half my life I've played guitar. And, um, and all through, through, through high school, or at least towards the end of high school and in, in sixth form, I used to play in bands and, and, and play guitar for different singers and things like that. I haven't been in a band since high school, like, since, since my A-levels actually, since I was 18, almost 10 years. And I guess, I don't know, it just never really happened. But um, I'm, I'm itching to get back into a, a long-term band actually. It's one of the things that I'd like to put more effort into doing. So music is a, a huge part of my life outside of work. And I'm also a really keen hiker as well. I love going hiking. And bird watching as well. So I, I love nothing more than you know going out to the mountains with a pair of binoculars and some sandwiches and a flask of tea. Very peaceful. And in the day hiking. It's lovely. Yeah, it really is. And one of the good things of lockdown is that more people have been going out walking. So I hope more people have yeah. discovered the joys of, 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 of you know, getting out there and, and, and walking somewhere. It's a simple pleasure. Yeah, because we haven't been, well, I know I've been doing lots more walking because we, that's the, our only chance to exercise and walk around. I, absolutely, yeah, I, I totally feel you. It, it's amazing how much you walk around without realising it on a given yeah. day. I mean, like, you'll know, I bet if you put a, a, a step meter or a pedometer on your belt when you go to school one day, you probably walk miles without realising it, just yeah. a few lessons and things. So, <laughs> so um, how has this epidemic affected your day-to-day -day job given that you can't be in a lab or an office and what have you been doing instead right so when when lockdown was first announced I thought, oh gosh i'm not gonna be able to get into the lab I, I can't really i can't do the lab from home because no a lot of the a lot of the things that we use in the lab it's illegal to have at home because it's so dangerous <laughs> you know, some of the acids for example it's they're pretty they're pretty spicy chemicals so we're not allowed in the home so there's, there's absolutely no chance that i could do lab work at home but do you remember I said scientists do a lot of writing? Yeah. I'd been a little bit, I'd been a little bit, not naughty, but I'd been a little bit too indulgent in the lab work and put some of the writing on the back burner for a while. And so luckily I had lots and lots of data to write up into papers. And so during lockdown, I've been, I've been writing basically every single day papers. And I, how long, how long have we been in lockdown? I've lost count now. So March, April, May, June. So we've been in lockdown for like nearly four months now, something yeah, like that. Months. Feels like four months. months. It feels, oh man, tell me about it. So we've been in lockdown for four months and I've, I've actually got loads and loads of writing done. So in a way, it's been a bit of a blessing to me. Not that it was worth it from all the damage and upset and, and hurt and pain that it's caused people, but, but from, from, from my job perspective, I've, it's been a bit of a blessing because it's given me a real opportunity and a good excuse not to spend all day in the lab and, <laughs> and do some writing. And my boss is very pleased about that, I must also add. <laughs> So I know you have given during lockdown some lessons on BBC Bite Size for the oh, yes. learning program. I now know lots more about breathing, which was <laughs> <one of the coffee laughs> fantastic. 
Um, did you enjoy giving these lessons and why did you decide to do it? It was wonderful. It's, it's, it's actually been my favourite thing about the whole of lockdown. It, it was being yeah. part of, of BBC Bite Size because the, the BBC did such a wonderful job at such short notice of piecing together this amazing series of online lessons and getting teachers from all different subjects and different experts from different fields on to teach the lessons and with a fab line of presenters and a really fantastic crew as well behind the scenes pushing the buttons and sliding the dials in the control room. And, and to be part of that, honestly, the, the, the biggest feeling that I have is gratitude and, and gratefulness to, to, to have been part of that national effort was, was, was amazing. And in a funny sort of way, the people at Bite Size, they became my colleagues during, yes. during lockdown. Yeah. Because, of course, I, I wasn't going into the lab and seeing my usual scientist colleagues. The people that I saw the most are actually the people at the BBC. And so it almost felt like my lockdown family. And, and, Again, like one of, the, one of the best parts of being on BBC Bite Size was, was people like yourself watching them and enjoying them and taking something from them. And I've had, I've had messages from, from, from people your age and their parents saying how much they've enjoyed Bite Size and it's been a real help to them. So it was, it was wonderful because, I, you know, science education is, is so important and, um, and it was great to be part of that team. So. Yeah, I think the BBC did a great job with that. Yeah, they really did, didn't they? That some of the teachers were absolutely fantastic, and it, and it was really great to meet some of them in real life as well. <laughs> yeah. So um, next, if it's all right with you, I'm going to talk to you about the your the BBC Two's astronauts. Do you have what it takes? Uh, in which you are a finalist. In my family, we're all rooting for you. Oh, thank you. That's so sweet. <laughs> But what made you want to originally apply to the program? Well, it's a funny story. I was actually in the lab down in Bristol where I was doing my PhD, and I set something cooking on the on the lab cooker. The technical name is a hot plate, but it's really just a cooker. <laughs> so I set something cooking, and it was going to take twenty minutes. So I thought I'll pop up to my office and get a quick quick coffee to keep me going through the morning. So I popped up to my office, flicked onto Twitter, and saw an advert from the BBC saying, "Do you want to be an astronaut?" And I thought, yeah, yeah, that'd be pretty <laughs> cool. So I clicked on the link and followed the instructions and, and just honestly just applied, just sort of off the cuff um, there and then, and then walked away and didn't think much more of it. And, and as it happened, I ended, up, I ended up being part of the final 12 lineup of people who were all these amazing people. I remember turning up on day one and thinking, oh no, what have I done? What have I done? I'm with all these really amazing people. I'm going to make such a fool of myself. I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm nowhere near as amazing as all these people. There are RIS pilots and surgeons and physics professors and and, uh, even Olympian bobslayers. Oh, my gosh. I'm just some random kid in a a lab in Bristol for these meteorites. But as it turned out, I didn't do too bad, actually. Yeah, final three. That's yeah, maybe maybe my age had a part to play in that. I don't know. Maybe maybe I don't know. Maybe I've still got well, a young brain like yours. And very, like, <laughs> I think your brain slows down as you get older, but but you'll 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 have a sharp brain. Maybe I still have a little bit of that. I was twenty four at the time, and so um and it and it was it was honestly unbelievable. And it, it's another thing that I just first of all I can't believe it happened, and second of all I'm just incredibly grateful and feel so much gratitude that I got to be a part of that and meet those people and and have those experiences. But the best part of the whole thing was people like you and your family enjoying it and coming along for the adventure as well. Yeah, it was. We all loved it. Every Saturday, we were there watching it. Um, what, what was your favourite bit? What, what test would you do if you could do any of them? 
Oh, well, the one I definitely would not do because I can't, I can't do spinning round was the spinning round thing that made you go really, really. Oh, really? Oh, that, yeah. that was my favourite, actually. Really? Oh. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it, it was such a strange feeling. <laughs> I would have loved the, um, the, when you went up on the plane and there was zero gravity. That looked amazing. That was unbelievable. If you, if you ever get the opportunity, or if anybody listening ever gets the opportunity to experience zero gravity, whether it, you know, hopefully it'll be in space, but if not on one of those planes that goes like that, then, yeah. then do, because it's amazing. Yeah, it looked brilliant. And I know if I had have done it, it would have really boosted my confidence and showed, have I actually got what it takes to be a national? And you obviously do, because you're in the final three. <laughs> Yeah, made it to the final three alongside a really wonderful woman called Kerry, who's yeah. an RAF pilot and a really wonderful person. And Kerry and I came second in the competition to another absolutely wonderful woman, a brilliant person called Susie, who's a physics professor who climbs mountains all over the world in her spare time. And, and you know, there was a moment on the final night when I was stood on a stage next to I was between Kerry and Susie because I'm a little bit taller than both of them, so I guess they put me in the middle. Um, and and I, I just remember looking at them both and thinking, gosh, I'm so proud to be stood next to these two people and to have, to have earned a place to be stood alongside them. They're, they're great. And they inspired me. And I, I certainly know that they inspired people at home as well. Yeah. So often when you watch television, you can tell, well, that's fake. But at least to me, this program looked real and genuinely challenging. But were there any things that viewers maybe did not get to see? Right, so it's really interesting you say that because the BBC did a fantastic job of capturing the spirit of the whole experience. The, yes. the, the, no, no, they, they somehow just managed to just encapsulate what it was like at the time. Nothing was scripted, and there was no acting. Everything was filmed like once, genuinely, and then it was then it was filmed. It, it was as it happened. Um, perhaps one of the things that viewers didn't see was all of the waiting around that we did, especially <laughs> at the beginning when there were loads of us. For example, on the first day, we had to fly a helicopter and there were 12 of us to get through. And it took, it took quite a long time just to get one person through the test. So there was a lot, a lot, a lot of sitting around. So it was almost like a, having like a trial run of lockdown, if you like. <laughs> you were amazing at that challenge, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I have no idea how I managed to hover that helicopter. But it was, <laughs> it was a combination of sheer luck and my very steady hand because of my job in the lab. I'm always pipetting very dangerous acid. And for yeah. that, cosmochemistry, you have to have a very steady hand or you'll lose the sample. And so my, I think my steady hand and, and a bit of luck was on my side when I, when I managed to hold the helicopter. It, it must have been really weird with cameras in your face whilst you were doing all these tasks. Did that ever affect the challenges? D definitely on, on the first few days, it was very strange, the yeah. cameras being there. But, you know, like these, these sort of, reality TV shows where people are being filmed and then the people always there, you just sort of forget the cameras are there. Yeah. That, that really does happen. You just, you just completely forget that they're there. And, and another thing that you don't see is that you, I became as much good friends with the camera crew as I did the contestants as well. They, they were part yeah. of the family. They were part of the astronaut's journey and the astronaut team. And so it, it, wasn't, it wasn't at all like it was some random strangers in, in, a, in a hat and... and and shades and a coat pulled up like with a camera filming us. They, they were our friends filming us and it was all, it was all really fun and, and very much part of the experience.
Yeah. So you've said which one you liked the best, but which one did you find the most challenging? Ooh, which one did I find the most challenging? But one of the ones, one of the ones that I found particularly challenging was it was right at the end, and we had to um, we had to go down to a, a, a science facility called Aquarius, yeah. which is is an underground training facility where they train astronauts. And it's basically a room at the bottom of the sea, on the seabed. It's it's about 20 metres down, and it's nestled amongst the coral reef. And one of the great things about it is when you first jump off the boat, and you're in the water, and you go down, and and you look down, and you see this coral reef, you don't actually see Aquarius because it's covered in plants and sea life. It it blends in. And then as you get further down, you think, oh, my gosh, there's there's a window in the side (laughs) In the side of that coral reef, and through the window, there's a table and a kettle in the kitchen, and it's oh my gosh, this is the most surreal thing. And and as part of that mission that Kerry, Susie, and I had to do, I was the team leader. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I've been a I've been a leader before in certain situations, but that was a situation where the stakes were very very high. I mean, it was it was actually really dangerous being down there. You could there are diving accidents all the time, and especially in such a strange environment, you know, this underwater habitat and um, lots yeah. can go wrong and for me to be placed as leader especially as the youngest person like leading these two absolutely amazing people an RAF pilot and physics professor Kerry and Susie um I, I initially felt like oh my gosh I'm not gonna be able to do this <laughs> but but actually as, as it went they were such fantastic teammates that it really it really helped my job as leader and it turned out okay actually and, and yeah, it gave me a real yeah. thought of real thought of confidence boost if you like yeah and how did they film this underwater section? Were there cameras in Aquarius? It was amazing. So one of the one of the camera crew went down into Aquarius before we arrived, and they were there waiting for us with the camera. And they took the camera down in this big, you know, like the the trunks on Harry Potter, where they put all yeah. their all their all their wizarding robes to take to Hogwarts. It was a bit like that. It was like it looked like a Harry Potter trunk, but it was waterproof. So they dragged it down with them, and they were there waiting for us when we arrived. It's actually one of the things that you don't see on the on the program was as soon as you so the way into Aquarius, you can't just have a door in the side of it because it's flood. Yeah. It's like in, it's like in the films, right, where they have a they have a hole in the facility and on the floor, and you come up underneath <laughs> into this pool. And one of the things that you see when you first pop up into this pool is a shower. There's a shower there with a shower curtain, and the BBC cameraman was behind the shower curtain waiting for us. So we just popped up in this underwater coral reef facility where they train astronauts, and out pops this BBC cameraman from behind a shower curtain, and that that just added to the weirdness of the whole situation. <laughs> yeah, oh, it sounds a bit like a dream. It felt like a dream. Ab- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've had str- I've, I haven't had dreams as strange as that in a long time yet. <laughs> and has the program changed your life? Oh yeah, de- definitely. So. There was this weird six-month period between filming and it airing, and I wasn't allowed to talk about it with anybody because it would spoil everything. And yeah, that was really difficult. And then it came on, and and at the time it was unbelievably amazing because so many people watched it and enjoyed it and took something from it and were encouraged by it, particularly young people as well. You know, yeah. there's there's no there's 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 nothing wrong with 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 aiming really high at something and working towards it, and that was. That was really celebrated in this program. Yeah. It, was, it was a really good message, I think. And so that was that was unbelievable. And to be part of that was life changing. It was really, really amazing. 
And since then, I've gone on to, to do lots of talks in schools and Cub Scout groups and astronomy groups and festivals and things like that. And, and I'm not sure I would have had that opportunity had I not been on astronauts. And so that, that's yeah. certainly one way in which it's really, really changed my life. And can you see yourself going to space anytime soon? Not anytime soon, for sure. I think one of the one of the great things is to aim high, but always be realistic. Yeah. Have a have a plan B, and maybe even a plan C as well sometimes. And so I I I think there's maybe like a one in a million chance that I'll ever actually get to go to space. But it never harms to try, right? Because if you yeah, don't exactly. Try, Who knows? Who knows? And and luckily, I'm 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 working hard towards some pretty pretty exciting stuff here on the on the Earth as well. There's plenty of stuff to do yeah. on the Earth if you don't get to go to space though would you like to go to space just out of interest yeah i think it would be amazing finding especially as technology is progressing and everything oh yeah so yeah, that I would agree. Be... yeah so... i think more people will get to go to space in future you know yeah in a similar way to you know 100 years ago to, to be on a plane you had to be a plane expert whereas now you can have one plane expert that's a pilot and a thousand people who don't know anything about a plane. <laughs> I think something similar might happen with space travel as well. So maybe, I don't know, maybe you'll be the driver and I can be a passenger. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. So um, if it's all right with you, I'm just going to talk to you about your upcoming plans. So you've yeah. written a book, Meteorite, which is coming out in August. So very soon. Um, tell us a bit about it and why you decided to write it. Right. So as, as I've already said, I'm a, I'm a cosmochemist geologist yeah. by training i study space rocks and over the last five years so that's well last six years really so that was the final year of my undergraduate degree my my internship that i did at the at the johnson space center my my phd and the last year of my research i've learned so much amazing stuff that, that people have learned about meteorites over the last hundred years or so it's honestly just an absolutely mind-blowing subject and i thought you know, I, I do I do talks and things, and I do I, I love coming on podcasts like this and doing radios. And I thought an, another way to perhaps get this subject out to people is by writing a book, because I know lots of people like reading, and probably even more people like listening to a book. So it is an audio book as well. And um, and so I wrote a book, and it, it took about two years to write it. I, I started it about two years ago, and um, and I did it alongside my PhD, which was. Looking yeah. back, I'm not quite sure how I did it because I also wrote my PhD thesis alongside it, which was a lot. It was it was a lot of writing. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a real lot of work, and I read hundreds of papers from the scientific literature, and and wrote this book to try and make cosmochemistry and meteorites available to everybody, whether you've got a science background or not. And so I I, I sort of had I sort of had people like you in mind actually, people who people who don't have a, a degree. They don't yeah. have a huge science education yet, although I, I suspect you might go on to have one. But, but even people who don't go on to have a huge science education, but still have an interest in science and still want to learn about it and, and, and actually can understand some quite complicated things, given the chance. I, I wrote the book with those people in mind. And so you don't need to be an academic. You don't need to be a scientist to understand this book. It, it's for everybody. And the, yeah. I think there are probably some parts of the book that are a little bit difficult to understand. There are maybe one or two points in the book when it gets quite heavy. But, but I put that in for people who were super interested and super keen. Um, but 99% but of the book is understandable without any thought of science background, for sure. 
and um and and I talk a little bit about my own personal experience as well of, of studying meteorites and talk about the Apollo missions and the planet Mars and, and all sorts of things. It was it was really fantastic to write. So it was it was a lot of work and time, but it was worth it. To those people who want to be like you and are inspired, what would you say? Right, so if if I could go back in time and give younger Tim a little bit of advice. So I must take this as a pinch of salt because I'm just as I'm just as prone to mistakes and bad advice as anybody else. But I do think this is a good piece of advice. And it's, and it's to work, work towards a goal over a long period of time. So be yeah. focused on something. And, and just every day, just, just strive to be a little bit closer towards it. And you won't notice, you won't notice the progress after a week. You, you probably won't notice it after a month or even three months. But if you work towards something for six months, every day, just think where you could be. Or, or even after a year, or if you go to university and do a degree, three years, or you know, taking your education as a whole, 10 or 15 years, just, just working every day, just a little bit, persistently and focused towards a goal, you'd be amazed at how far you can get towards it. And then there's the whole problem of picking a goal as well. Now, I'm bad, I'm bad at this because I, I've spent as much time in my life as anybody wondering what I want to do with my life. Because life, yeah. life's big and life's scary and there are lots of options, right? And you're never quite sure if you're going to go down the right path. But what I would say is, is be realistic. Yeah. As, as crude and as boring as this sounds, you have to do something that's going to be able to pay rent. <laughs> so I, I'd, love to, I'd love to do some, I don't know, like I'd love to play guitar for a living, for example. I could see myself being a guitarist for a living but I'm, I'm, I'm never going to make any money out of that so I have to do something that's going to make some money so be realistic but there's nothing wrong with aiming high either and yeah. and just one final thing is even if you're not sure what to do aiming towards something is a really good way to try and figure that out because if you're not aiming towards anything you're just wandering around in circles not really going anywhere so in a sense it almost doesn't matter what you pick to work towards so just yeah. pick something and work towards it and you'll find you'll find it out on the way that's brilliant advice so can you tell us about a few of the people who have inspired you in different ways in your lifetime yes absolutely so you you, you may not know this this chap but there's a chap called carl fagan who was an astrophysicist in the 19 well in the 1970s and 80s and 90s and he did a documentary television series in the 1980s called Cosmos. It, it was a little bit like the Brian Cox of the time, really, yeah. in the same way that, that Brian Cox is, you know, does all these wonderful documentaries. Well, Carl Sagan did that back in the 1980s, which was way before I was born. I was born in the 1990s. And, and so I only really discovered this later in life. It was one of, one of my physics teachers at school said, you, you'd really like this guy called Carl Sagan, who did this documentary series and wrote a book called Cosmos. And so I read the book and watched the series. And the way that he spoke about science was so exciting and beautiful and wonderful that that just, it stoked the fire within me and really sort of made my mind up that science is what I want to do with my life. So certainly Carl Sagan. And I've been fortunate enough as well through, through my life and my education to have lots of wonderful teachers and mentors as well. Um, for, for example, there, there's, a, there's a research scientist at the University of Manchester called Katie Joy, and she studies moon rocks for a job. I mean, how cool is that? I remember finding <laughs> out that, that she did that for a job and thinking, really? Like, you study moon rocks for your job? 
anyway, Katie really helped me get the internship at the Johnson Space Centre. She she sort of sat me down and gave me lots of advice. And then she ended up yeah. being my supervisor for my master's project. And she really inspired me as well because she, she works really hard and 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 is really well read and and most importantly kind and supportive as well. And so she 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 really inspired me too. And there there have been lots of other examples of people. So I've been really, really fortunate that I've had people sort of helping me out along the way. But that that's not to say that I haven't also worked hard as well. Yeah. I, I never I always think that success comes from a combination of luck and hard work. And yeah. I think the word for that is fortune. So um, I consider myself very, very fortunate because it's been years and years and years of really hard work. But I've also been incredibly lucky as well in the people that I've met and who have guided me. You're an example that hard work really does pay off. It really does eventually pay off. Absolutely. And, and I, always, I always think, you know, it doesn't pay off. You might work really, really, really hard for an exam. This has happened to me a few times. You work really, really hard for an exam and just on the day, you just can't pull it out of the bag. And yeah. you think, oh, God, I'm kicking myself. Like, I, I worked so hard for that. The outcome would have been exactly the same if you hadn't have worked. But yeah. if you don't work hard, you'll never succeed. But if you do work hard, you will eventually succeed sometimes. And that makes all the difference. And, and so perhaps another little piece of advice that I always remind myself of is, is failure is, is just an opportunity to learn. And, and, and it's not a reason to, to give up either. Yeah, it's a learning step. That's a really good way of thinking about it. Yeah, and steps yeah. can be quite tall sometimes, especially if they're stepping stones over a river. It can be scary. <laughs> but um, but it's, it's always worth taking them. Yeah. And finally, what next? What have you got planned for the future? Right. So the life of an academic is very strange. So when you're an academic scientist, you don't just stay in one place your whole life. You, you usually move around to different laboratories and work with different research groups. And in a couple of months, my time at the British Geological Survey, unfortunately, is coming to an end. And I'm just in the process now of firming up the details of some, some further research in a slightly different area to cosmochemistry, actually. I'm going to be, I'm going to be moving into researching nuclear chemistry which is sort of similar to cosmochemistry in that instead of teasing apart meteorites on the atomic scale and looking at the chemistry of meteorites, I'll be looking at the chemistry of nuclear materials while still doing a little bit of cosmochemistry on the side for at least a couple, you know, a year or two, finishing off some, yeah. some research projects. And, and so I'm, I'm moving, I'm putting one foot into a brand new subject very soon. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, it's sort of this exciting, exciting new unknown opportunity where I'm, I'm not an expert in nuclear chemistry, but in a few years, with a bit of luck and hard work, I might be an expert in nuclear chemistry. And that is really exciting. And so that's what I'm going to be starting to do in a few months. And who knows what I'll be doing after that. <laughs> well, it's amazing, actually, how the word scientist covers so many branches. Oh, gosh, absolutely. You know, I, was, I was getting my hair cut for the first time in months last week by my hairdresser because they finally opened and I was so glad yeah. to see it. <laughs> and she and, and one of her colleagues at, were in the on the other side of the the, the hairdressers because we were socially distancing she was she was mixing together chemicals for hair dyes and I just thought that's science 
you're following yeah. instructions and, and you're mixing to hydrogen peroxide. Did you know that hydrogen peroxide is the chemical that we use to bleach hair blonde? And I use hydrogen peroxide in the laboratory in my chemistry. And so it's amazing. It's amazing how far reaching science is and, and the, the, the weird and wonderful places that it can take you. And I mean, I mean, I'm excited for you as a, as a young person. You've got this, you've got this whole, you've got all these million different roads going off in different directions where you can take things. I didn't know cosmochemistry existed when I was your age and I've ended up doing it for a job. And so yeah. who, who, who knows where it can take you? Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Dr. Tim Gregory. Thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure. That's all for now, but tune in next time when I'll be interviewing the Olivia award-winning playwright and actor, Henry Shields. Bye for now. Music on this podcast was from the website podsummit.com and Festlian Studios. Remember, this podcast was made during the COVID-19 lockdown, so Dr. Tim was interviewed online.